0: Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost, the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy to use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange traded funds, Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty
1: secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back
2: or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin.
0: Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Louis R. episode 121. As always, join my three amigos, Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, another new Patagucci best, Rich Diaz, PGM Global. Hello, what's going on? Your hair
1: Rich. is growing out like crazy. I know. My hair is a little crazy, I'm realizing. <laughs> I think I'm over two for a haircut. I'm trying desperately to pat it down, but it's not working out. It's not working It looks out.
2: awesome, though. For everyone who's listening and not watching, you know, Rich has this completely pristine white background behind him, an equally pristine white shirt. shirt, sure. And then he has this really awesome unkept hair that's just this, growing everywhere. It's poofy mess. Um,
1: no, They're it's Great, it's a great day in Montreal. Uh, All Star Weekend. Go Habs. Go Habs. Um, yeah. No, are nothing gonna trade, going on? Are they going to trade Monahan at the deadline? I I really hope they don't. I really hope they don't. Uh, I I know they have to because I think think they made like a gentleman's agreement. But listen, I want I'm embracing the tank. I want um I want us to be bad, but we're doing better than expected. But no, it's, it's all about the Super Bowl. I think, no, not yet. Next week, we're going to have a prediction, right? Keith, tell, me, tell us about what's going on. You're lucky. I think you you did well.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, football you almost is choked a that one, too. Yeah. That's...
0: <laughs> it takes... No, the Lions know, choked.
2: <laughs> you know what? Uh, you know, everyone knows this, but it after 60 minutes, usually the better team will win that day. So, uh, yeah, lots of analysis this week. Next week, we'll come up with a... Uh, a uh an opinion and a view on what the score is going to be for the big game you know two sundays from now but it that was a pretty stressful weekend mrs ice cap created new swear words i didn't even know existed and she could string them together pretty well so you should live
0: a... stream that <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's some some pretty good uh videos online you know people just freaking out and exciting over it. But yeah that was fun what's, fun what's weekend your football, of football
0: routine what do you do, do you Crush open some Bud Lights and
2: fry up the pizza or what? Uh I don't think Bud Light is is in our house. <laughs> <laughs> We're not exactly a Bud Light family. No, we always have good food and good drinks. And I have a big uh like 49ers box with all the stuff that you accumulate over the years, like little figurines, helmets and j- jerseys and autograph balls and flags and all that stuff so you set all that up you know on game day and then you have fun anyway big one coming up
1: i have a a really important question are you gonna have a prognostication on whether or not uh taylor swift is gonna marry uh
2: what's his face (laughs) that's a pretty good rabbit hole now if you you go down that one (laughs) The, the, the league has a huge incentive for her to win and uh you know. Oh, anyway, here comes that's... the tinfoil hat that's i know right. it's coming out already and we're and we'll go to that next week speaking of tinfoil hats we had the fed yesterday and we had bank of canada last week and ecb the bank of england the swedes they have a central bank as well by the way so yep. uh a lot of tin the foil oldest central bank in the, world, in the world
1: isn't it the old i think the swedish is the oldest central bank in the world Or one of them. Yeah, I
2: think it is. Yeah, that dude is pretty old. The original swamp. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but isn't it funny? It's it's really funny how people talk about you know this this, the Riksbank, you know, this Swedish central bank, as if they have a a huge impact on the world, which which they how dare you? Of course, they do. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like the Bank of Canada. Kind of like the Bank of Canada. But didn't, um, there didn't is... uh, last week, didn't Tien say that last week that, oh yeah, every meeting he goes to everyone, they asked about Canada first and he was being polite. He said the opposite, actually, if you remember. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Set but... us up, Steve. What do we got going on today? Yeah. Just,
0: uh, you know, obviously the Fed, everyone's kind of watching what's going to happen with the rates. Of course, we had the Bank of Canada last week, you know, we're seeing the, uh, the articles and comments are popping up on Twitter and Reddit about you know the bidding wars returning in the GTA and parts of Vancouver. So everybody seemingly is trying to front run the BOC as to when they're going to start cutting rates again. Uh, so it's interesting. We've, uh, you know, I can tell you this from just personal experience here in the market that um, the, the sentiment has changed dramatically. Uh, housing is roaring back to life right now. So I don't know, we'll, we'll see how that sort of shapes up. Uh, it's interesting just to sort of see the animal spirits, um, for, for Canadians, right. It's, it's just, a, just the idea of slightly lower rates is getting people all hot and heavy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a lot of these bidding wars popping back up and, in, in particularly in the GTA and, People are trying to sort of denounce it. And, and so we'll see. Um, you know, we had, you know, the bank of Canada last week, there was an interesting comment from uh deputy governor. Um, Carolyn Rogers. No, no, he's, he's retired. Oh, okay. I like Carolyn. Rogers. Paul, uh, Paul Beaudry retired. So he was uh, interviewed, I believe it was by Bloomberg this week. He says, I wouldn't see the potential rate cuts until probably the July decision. So he's also, uh, Trying to front run the housing market as well,
2: <laughs>
0: but I—it's interesting. Like a guy that just retired, you know. What do you? How much? How much stock do you put on his words? He just well, left the kind swamp.
2: Of, well, it's kind of funny because he said he's expecting the first cut in in June. If you look up what are financial markets expecting for the first cut, when is it, Rich? Which month? I'm typing it up. It's the warp. It's the warp. It's April or June, right? So he's in line. You know, you joke, right? When you go to do an interview, with these things. So you, you know, even though he's not in there anymore, you're still, you know, your lo- your lips can be a bit, a bit looser than they were before. Real original,
0: but, Paul. Thanks a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's
1: May. It's May. It's it's ninety seven percent chance of a of a cut. Well, he's May. saying June. So there not, you go. Not exactly a super heroic
0: call from our dear deputy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, more importantly, you know, the BOC is uh, you know a fart in the wind. What really matters here is is the Fed. So we had Jay Powell yesterday, uh, Keith. I'll let you kind of walk us through that. Some some important commentary from the world's uh, largest, most important central bank.
2: I know it's always exciting when it's Fed Day because in the morning, like nothing is moving. <laughs> the lunchtime is still nothing moving. And then literally five minutes before 2 p.m. Eastern, you see Marcus start to move. And you're wondering, do they know something? That they're starting to get whispers at what might come out. Nancy Meanwhile, Pelosi's
0: you... just shuffling her deck.
2: Oh, yeah. She's she's stocking up on calls and puts and everything. And she's, she has a good record of that stuff. She's the, an amazing uh... record. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I know. Yeah. I sat next to her in the football game once, you know, and she's she owned, I think, two or three rows in that section. So she's having success. Shocker. What people don't realize as well. So you have the Fed meeting and then you have the media. They're all you know locked into a a room with them. And uh, I think you have what is the media blackout, you know, the loony hour. We have that as well sometimes. Right. And uh, but they're in there about 30 minutes, just banging away on their typewriters and, and everything, trying to get the story ready to go. And I think you'll also appreciate their story is probably 85% already written. They just have to change some of the uh I guess adjectives they're using and you know, cut to hold and, and stuff like that. But the big news with the Fed yesterday, and I think just to back up, I think we all need to appreciate that back in December, which was what five weeks ago now, maybe in the middle of December everyone was expecting every major central bank to start cutting by anywhere from hundred to 150 basis points this year. It was, it was unbelievable. You know, we, you know, we hit a euphoria and a mania in that, you know, rates are coming back down hard. And now here we are, you know, a month later, and now we've done a round trip on that. So what the fed did yesterday, you know, they effectively came out and said, Hey, uh, you know, you're all expecting us to cut in March. Uh, we might cut in March, but it's, you know, it's pretty likely we're not going to cut in March. We You know, we kind of like the way things were set up here. So once again, you know, they've you know they stayed hawkish or not dovish. You know, everyone's waiting for this pivot to take place. And, uh, you know, that has everyone, um, you know, all up in arms or anxious and concerned. But it's sort of what's carried over with the Bank of Canada last week and same with the Europeans. Like everyone is, I say everyone, all the central banks, they're they're all leaning towards hey, there's gonna be a cut next. I remember you guys might remember this earlier last year, I like think in the spring, uh, after the Canadians did their last rate hike, I said, I said, Hey, the, the next move by the Canadian by Bank of Canada would be a cut. And uh, I think some people interpreted me but what I was saying was that the next meeting there will be a cut. What I meant was that. Hey, there's no more rate hikes happening. So then, by default, the next move, you know, will be a cut. And you don't know when it's going to happen, but we're still sort of in in that game right now. But uh, that the Fed meeting yesterday, it once again it, it it pushed everything out a little bit further, and it's it's creating uh, some real headwinds. And I have some ideas of what might happen with markets between now and March the twentieth, the next Fed meeting. So what what did you hear, Rich? When when you uh, listened, watch? Felt the yeah,
1: I mean, same as you, I thought it was interesting, just so people sort of understand there's always like market reactions when people or excuse me, when the markets don't quite anticipate what's going to happen. And what we got yesterday was exactly that. So to it, maybe it wasn't, let's say, what Powell came out and said wasn't, let's say, dramatic, but in the sense that um, he didn't. It wasn't revolutionary to say that you know inflation is still an issue and they're not quite um, ready to cut, et cetera. But what was interesting was the Nasdaq was down almost one point seven percent on the day, and that that was you know, and then it fell again towards the end of the day. All the way, I'm looking at it right now, almost two percent. So that tells you that, um, and the reason that the Nasdaq is usually is tech heavy. Um, sort of a long duration assets that are linked to sort of financial conditions. And so the movement that we saw in that uh, equity market tells you that the market wasn't sort of, it was caught a little bit off guard, let's just say. Um, I think speaking on, and on that theme of being off guard, I think everyone is just like, I, I, I'm i a little bit of a contrarian, so forgive me. And maybe I'm being maybe too aggressive in my language, but I think there's just not enough um risk of inflation sort of re-accelerating, being priced in either to the equity market, um, or certainly what's priced into our little warp function, the Fed futures, um, the Fed fund futures rate. So like the bets on what's gonna happen. And he didn't really mention that at all. But to me, that the takeaway, I think the takeaway from the CPI from a couple of weeks ago and today, the ISM price is paid, which we'll get into in a few minutes. Uh, I just, I feel like in just general, everybody's so convinced that, you know, we're going to have this, le- listen, this very obvious clear glide path towards lower rates. And I just can't help but kind of hope that the market's going to be a little bit wrong on this. But so that, yeah, that's sort what, of my takeaway.
2: Why do you hope them to be like, what, what, let's sort of talk about that. Like, what would be the reaction if central uh, banks don't cut aggressively, or what? What if there are no cuts for the next twelve months?
1: Well, that's what if- yeah. I think I think the the reason I think I think it, hope is the wrong word. I just think I mean I like kind of I like the volatility. I think it's fun. I think it's interesting when sort of the market thinks one way and and it ends up being the other, or the narrative is sort of proven wrong. And I think that that's um I I sort of and I I frankly I genuinely believe that there's just a lot of imp- inflationary impulse that's still in the market. And I think that um, you could make the case that um, that Fed policy is still too easy and that we've actually seen a lot of the financial conditions ease over the last, let's say, six months. There's different ways to calculate financial conditions. One is like, uh, you know, spreads, which are super tight, um, the behavior um and you know, surveys from banks and other sort of uh, financial intermediaries. There's the Bloomberg Financial Condition Index, which you can Google. There's the Goldman Sachs Financial condition. And all of these numbers have either have gone up. that is to say that they the financial conditions are way, way easier than they were six months ago, and the Fed hasn't even cut. And that's on the backdrop of really big deficits, improving sort of consumer confidence. anyways, I just think,
0: uh, yeah, Steve, I, I think it's well, just I, interesting. I think that's like a kind of like an interesting framework to, to use even just for the Canadian space. Cause like a lot of the conversation that I'm having today with like people that are in the real estate industry that I think are eternally optimistic, of course. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, what we're seeing and hearing right now is, is, Hey, look, sentiment's getting better. You know, the bank is you know, done. And like he said, probably the next move at some point is going to be that cut and so everyone's like hey you know, this is going to be like a ripping hot spring market like things are getting better and and so I kind of wonder about that is if everyone's kind of starting to front run the BOC do you have a situation where housing kind of accelerates prices start going back up and if you're a tiff Macklem with the BOC you're going well why why am I cutting do you just then push those rate cuts further out. Like we saw this last year in 2023, right? Like housing, basically the bank account, I think came out in January of 2023 and says that yeah, we're done. We're basically going on hold. We're pausing housing ripped. And then he had to come back in and what was it like late spring, early summer to, to re-raise rates another whatever they raised another 50 basis points. So I do wonder yeah. that it's almost like careful what you wish for. If, if financial conditions ease too much, you know stocks push higher housing reaccelerates higher uh, you have to think that just pushes the odds for rate cuts
2: further and further out so what i love about about hearing this uh, i have a question for you before i give you my wisdom here <laughs> you know again we <laughs> we you know we we've had this 10 12 15 year period or era of where we've had, you know, free money, you know, the whole world has been able to borrow excessively at incredibly low rates. And then when you had to roll over that that debt, you know, whether it's a mortgage or something else, you were able to do it at an even lower rate. So the, I mean, the challenge we have here now is that from an economic as well as cultural perspective, it's the expectation that rates have to go lower. And no one's prepared in case that they don't go lower, and so that, I think you know you raised a good point, Rich, there a few, a few minutes ago. Uh, hey, maybe what if they don't go lower? How does everyone react to that? And you know we'll all uh, adjust for. That's the way all spending will have to adjust. You have no choice about it, and companies will make adjustments, and banks will uh, as well. But you know this this obsession with rates. They go up they have to immediately come back down like there's no discussion that hey maybe they'll stay flat or maybe they won't come down or the expectations are just completely you know crazy and and wacky uh, and that's i think that's the risk we have so so steve for example back in december what like, if you know like what were the estimates then for let's say three and five year fixed mortgages were being offered at and, and how is that today have they changed were they a bit higher or lower
0: Yeah, I mean, most people have been boring. like, I think, well, let's just use a three year fixed rate, because that's what everyone's pretty much borrowing these days. You know, the days of doing a five year fixed or a variable are not really happening anymore. Um, You know, people, people don't want to lock in today's rates for five years, because they feel they're going to come down but you want enough sort of peace of mind, security. So that three-year term is kind of like that sweet spot that really since the rate hiking cycle began almost two years ago, that's kind of what everyone's basically pivoted to. So that three-year fix like in the fall of, of last year was, was as high, it reached as high as about 6.3. And then it just really collapsed into December where you know we were kind of in the low fives Five, three we got down to as low as like 5.1 we kind of re-accelerated we're basically still at the same spot where today you know you're about five
2: point 5.3 is kind of the number so and we're kind of and just what was it what along. was it say three years ago like back in 21 and 22
0: oh gosh I mean most people were doing like five year fixed right so you could get a five year at you know 2.2. Two point. I mean, during the during the depths of the pandemic, I had clients locking in five year rates at one point three, right? That's free money. I had one guy lock in, and keep in mind, ten year rates in Canada aren't very common. Uh, most people just have never really done them. Uh, but I had one guy who did a ten year fixed one point
2: eight. <laughs> That's so, fantastic for that person. Really uh, good. But yeah, I mean, obviously today it's so know, he was money. smarter than uh, you know the the treasure the minister of finance in Ottawa. <laughs> hey, they locked everything in at what? Rich, one, two, three year, maybe <laughs> ridiculous.
1: Glenn, rates are our all time low. What did he say? You, don't- I screwed it up. Rates, rates, rates are, are all time low low lows,
2: Glenn. <laughs> that's right.
1: Don't forget to tilt your head and, and yeah, you know, that's right, and, and do a really condescending like. Um, just to put some numbers, just for people to who are obsessed with these rate cuts. I mean, U.S. nominal GDP growth is about almost six percent. So, and and we have CPI, which bottomed in October, November. You could argue it bottomed in June. Is now at three point four percent core, excluding um energy and food. Again, the wisdom of excluding energy and food, it could be argued some other day. But that's a three point nine percent, and the target for the Federal Reserve is around two. Now, yes, they target uh core PC, but I mean it's you know, it's 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 just to me it, it, I just I don't well, know. People like always started, find a
0: number they go like, oh like you know yeah. core P C E if you do yeah, the three, exactly. if you do the three month, you know, average or the three month annualized or or whatever or twelve month you know yeah. what I mean? Like everybody's finds this like data point. They're like, hey the Fed should be easing and, and they should be doing it right now. And like
1: exactly or trueflation? I mean, one of my colleagues. Um, I Bud do Lomar, like trueflation.
0: Is at least we cut through the bullshit. But
1: yeah, Emmett, a- who's a really smart trader on the desk, um, he con- He never fails to rem- remind me that trueflation is is just continuing to go down and down and down. Uh, maybe that brings us to one point eight percent. By the way, yeah,
0: that's it. One point eight.
1: So sh- shout out to Emmett, a uh, smart guy. Um, so you know, who knows what's gonna happen? I just, I just, I don't know. I guess I, I like the, I like. I like it when everyone's going like looking left and then the answer is right or the opposite. You know, well, I always find that it's more fun that way.
2: Rich, here's a good uh, looking left for you. So right now for the Americans, so for the Fed, the expectations right now, so for one year from now, that the Fed would have cut rates by almost 200 basis points. So 175, Yikes. that's pretty big. That, that, yeah. That's a like significant move. Even for a real estate guy, that seems optimistic. Steve, I know you guys like big round numbers, right? That's why I said (laughs) 2% and not 175. But, uh, you know, if if the Americans are cutting by, you know, 175 over 12 months, um, you know, that tells me that the rest of the world is in trouble. So it would be similar to the 2018, I think it was 2018 experience you know, the Fed was always hiking every second meeting 25, you know, nothing 25 again, and they were so transparent with what they were doing, and where they were going. And then finally, you know, the emerging market world first, they just buckled, they said, hey, we we can't handle this anymore. So again, if the Americans are cutting by, you know, 175 over the next 12 months, my view, you know, it could be right or wrong, take it for what it is. It's not that hey growth is awesome they're, they're, you know they're able to let you know let some more juice out and stuff like that to keep things running it means someone out there is you know really feeling it so they would have to try to deflect assets out of the american market or economy or, or you know the us dollar basically and to, to push it back out and then that's the that's the way that you should view these rate changes um so Powell's there's one more oh, there's one more quick
1: point. Oh sorry, just Steve, one yeah. one more quick point is that we we also didn't even mention the labor market. And so people need to understand the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. There's you know full employment, whatever the hell that means, and inflation um at close to two percent, although that's not exactly clear either. But the point is is there's a dual mandate. Unless you have weakness in the labor market, which we haven't seen, initial jobless claims are down, um, continuing claims are down. Um, you know you're having some key sectors that continue to show decent wage growth, like uh, non-residential construction and other parts of the economy. Unless you get weakness in the labor market, I don't
0: think any of these cuts are coming. But sorry, Steve, please. you had a soft ADP number this week, didn't you? That's true. But the ADP like, is like that's the, private payroll, ugly... and everybody, the everything's volatile, noisy. What data set are you looking at? And Yeah, it's the ugly uh, duckling
1: as far as labor market uh, data points come out. So who knows? But no, it's a fair... You're right,
0: though. It was a very weak number from the ADP. So maybe we're just about to get it. But anyway, there you go. Do you see like... I mean, maybe it's like time's confirmation bias. But it feels like every day there's like a new company that's announcing like job layoffs. And I always find that interesting because it's like, you know, you see all these big tech names or, you know, I think it was UPS. UPS just, like, um, I think laid off
2: a bunch of people, revised their, like, guidance lower. And you're like, well, hey, that's I think, though, do you... Yeah, I think I actually have a list here. So, you know, companies that we've heard of that made job cuts recently, uh, you Google, Amazon, Citigroup, eBay, Macy's, Microsoft, Shell, Wayfair, all the banks have done job cuts, and even Enbridge, you know, up here in Canada. I think the UPS one might be uh, somewhat related to the big union uh new collective bargaining agreement that they signed uh, a few weeks or a few months ago. It was it was uh very generous, you know, for the workers, which of course would squeeze margins for for UPS. So they
0: cut 12,000 jobs basically.
2: Yeah, so that's how you offset, you know, your uh your soaring labor costs. You just have less people to pay them to pay them to. But it's a big deal. But that's the big difference though between FedEx and UPS. You know, like the underlying business is a little bit different. But one is, uh, you know, highly unionized, and then the other one is is less so. And I, I know you have different between you know air and land and things like that. But one is run more. Uh, I might be wrong. It might be more not franchise but independent contractor type business lines. And but those would be
0: something. like those shipping companies would be like good bellwethers for economic activity. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: and they both trucking, have- co- trucking companies, shipping. Um, but so is housing, and housing ones are starting to rise. R- rail, like yeah, sorry, all that transport stuff. So there's um, just to, to reiterate your point, though, Steve. There's a there's a um, there's a data series called the Challenger, Gray and Christmas. I don't know why. I guess those are the authors of that, um, and it's called the U.S. Job Cut Announcement. So you can Google that if you want to, and that actually just spiked. So I thought that was pretty cool. So it spiked last year around this time. Remember when all those tech companies were cutting, laying people off and it got up to, I think, about 100,000 or maybe even more. But anyway, so it just the last data point just spiked uh, from the lows of uh, December all the way up to 82,300.
0: I'm just looking at it right now. So that
1: just sort of corroborates what you've been saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean... To summarize Powell's comments here, I thought the one you know soundbite was interesting from him. He says we will be will it will be appropriate to dial back at some point this year. March is quote not the most likely case for the first rate cut. So um, you know, kind of push back on on how soon, but it you know they certainly did signal that um, there appears to be like a bias towards easing at some point later this year. But uh, we'll
2: see how far that gets pushed out. Speaking of... Oh, wait, Steve, just just to sort of add on to that to, to everyone. Remember, this is an election year. So the election is in November, you know, for the Americans. And so that likely means the September meeting and likely the November 7th meeting are, uh, are off the table but for, doing, for doing any cuts or anything like that because you know tradition that they, they try to you know remain neutral somewhat if that's the case it means we have three meetings coming up where it would be a live meeting so you rule out the march meeting because you just said hey we're not going to cut rates in march so that means then you have may june and july is live meetings and the markets right now are pricing in about 75 basis points and cuts so if you do 75 then nothing in say september or november uh then you're looking at a 100 for the last end of the year again like things don't reconcile hey eh? do you know yeah. what
0: i mean no no i totally it's a really good good point I just, yeah so don't make any big investment decisions on on the hopes that rates are coming down we just have to
2: Maybe five is the new normal. I have another uh, that- thoughts. Yeah, we're not letting this go, are we? Like, well, I'm No, not go for it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, so right now we have, I mean, so the next Fed meeting is March 20th, right? So, you know, here we are Thursday, Feb 1. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, we got a few weeks here before the next meeting. Uh, markets could force the Fed to cut in March. And by, by doing that, by you sell off, you know, you have this risk off market experience one week, two week, three weeks. all of a sudden, you know, everyone's asking for cuts and it, it could sort of create itself and force the fed to do something. Cause the fed has been forced to do things a lot over the last six months, not necessarily with rate changes, but with their speaking, the words they're using their, their language and stuff like that. So don't, don't underestimate the power of markets to, uh, sort of go, or get the fed or even the bank of canada you know to do what what it wants that's it now steve no more for me on on the fed
0: well no just interesting just seeing the you know the market reaction over the last few days um you know there's, there's quite a few news stories going on but obviously you got bond yields actually falling. rich um so bond yields have been pushing lower a lot of this actually has to tie into what's happening with, with the banks. Um, some of these banks that are tied into these commercial real estate loans. Of course, we flagged commercial real estate, you know, what, over a year ago? I think everyone's kind of known it's like this problem that's kind of just behind the scenes. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it was almost like a forgotten story. But banks, just for a reminder, <clears throat> banks are facing roughly $560 billion in commercial real estate maturities by the end of twenty twenty five. Um, so you know, there's a lot of bad loans, particularly in the office space, that are are coming up for renewal and um, you know, what's gonna happen with these assets in an illiquid market. And so I don't know if you want to walk us through that Rich, what's been yeah, going sure. on with some of these banks.
1: So I think it's important that people just maybe some maybe some context and then I'll set it up for Keith and he can sort of give us his view on what he thinks might happen. But I just so people understand commercial real estate is a is like an umbrella term for a whole whack of different types of um, corporations, buildings, stuff. There's offices. That makes sense. Apartments. There's things like self-storage properties um, you see on the highway. Uh, as you drive, I feel like whenever I'm driving away from my mom's house, I always see them. There's industrial parks. And I mean, not just industrial parks, but industrial warehouses. I mean, I guess that's self storage, but not the same. Do you know what I mean? Then there's malls. Remember a couple of years ago, malls had a big sort of comeuppance. No one wanted to go to a mall. I'm not sure if people still do, but there was a huge, you know, and so when you talk about commercial real estate, that's what we mean. Um, And so, and not all of them have sort of had the same, have felt the same pain. So malls, which had a, you know, had their reckoning several years ago, actually are sort of have actually not done that badly. Um, You know, I think they're, you know, they're actually up depending on how you value them because they had already sort of had their bottom industrial parks, flat self-storage. The real pain is, is in the offices and then certain types of, um, apartments. And so the offices is where, you know, that's, that's really where a lot, a lot of this exposure is. Um, it's generally in the U S and in, I, I don't know, Canada has only got six banks cause we love oligopolies. So I can't really speak to how that, you know, um, exposure is spread out, but in the U S it's really sort of the smaller regional banks that have a big time exposure to these commercial real estate, um, uh, businesses. And, the problem is, is that your the way that these banks are uh, often lend to these companies is uh, i think I, forgive me if i'm fucked this up but it, it's like a minimum of a loan to value of like 50% and so if your value if your let's say occupancy ratio occupancy rates go down or the value of the pro- and that's how you sort of view or value the property if that property price goes down then the loan to value needs to be topped up. And in some cases, people are walking away from the mortgages. Uh, so that means the equity base, that equity piece, there's like the loan piece and the equity piece, that equity piece is going to zero. And then some of these banks are having having to step in and absorb these businesses, these properties. They don't want to do that. That's not the business that they're in. Sometimes they're forced to. um, And so that impairs on their own balance sheet and their own equity positions. And so you've got sort of a knock-on, a cascading effect there. Um, as we know, it's very expensive and cumbersome to to readjust or, or reposition these office buildings to make them residential. In some cases, it's literally impossible, you can't do it. And, and so you have huge impairments and huge like um, losses on these different either banks, but then there's also real estate investment trusts, there's private equity capital that exists, Uh, I guess there's some high net worth individuals that own these properties. And depending on how levered they are, that's where the pain comes. It's also depending on where these properties are. So occupancy rates in place in loads of American big cities have fallen a lot in Europe, Stockholm, Milan, Paris, London. That's not true at all. People have returned to the office for multiple, multiple different reasons. And so your occupancy ratios haven't fallen at all. You know, you've been able to drive up rents. And so the and so. The exposure, the type of asset, the type of financing—it's—it's um, it's not at all a homogenous sort of um, asset um, in the same way, let's say, government bonds from a specific country are. Anyway, so that sorry, I know that's like on and on a bit, but I think it's important people sort of have that context.
0: Yeah, just to summarize on the the banks, so um, so it's New York. New York Community Bancorp's decision is slashes dividend uh, and stockpile reserves, sent its stock down a record 38% uh, this week, with the fallout dragging the shares to a 23-year low on Thursday. Uh, and that selling bled into Europe and Asia, where Tokyo-based Aozora uh, plunged more than 20% after warning of U.S. commercial property losses in Frankfurt's. Uh, Deutsche Bank, uh, more than quadrupled its U.S. real estate loss provisions, <laughs> so it's uh, kind of emanating across, and uh, you know, across the world. And then obviously, we're seeing that reflected, I think, in the bond market, despite some some hotter than expected ISM prints this week.
2: It's kind of odd to hear Deutsche Bank is involved with writing <laughs> off assets. Isn't oh it?
1: my god. I mean, it's great. There's some numbers, though, out of like out of like San Francisco. I'm just reading this right now. So the Aon, Aon Center, the third largest office tower in Los Angeles, recently sold for one hundred forty seven million. That's forty five percent less than the purchase price in 2014. So you can imagine that's happening everywhere. And, you know, money goes to money heaven. It's just va- these valuations are vaporized. Uh, people literally companies will literally go bankrupt to walk away from these loans Um, There's also there's also multifamily, which we don't talk about enough in the uh, talk about enough in Canada. It's ripping because we have rents that are going up like crazy. Uh, We have vacancy rates that are basically at all time lows nationally. Um, I can only I mean, in some places, I don't know about Calgary, Steve, but I know nationally vacancy rates are at all time lows where it's in the United States. It's not at all the same. You actually have some there's gluts of multifamily. So in the south, multifamily. Uh, delinquency rates are sort of back to all time highs that you saw in 20, 2008. So there's all kinds of different moving parts and different in the corporate real estate game. But the point really Keith is that there's a lot of pain and I don't
0: think we've seen, I don't, I think there's loads more to come. Well, just, you know, on the Canada, U S front on the rental market. I mean, we've chatted about this quite a bit on the show, which is you're still seeing rent appreciation Accelerate to the upside, um, which is obviously impacting the Bank of Canada's job in terms of getting inflation down. Whereas in the U.S., you're actually seeing some of these um, some of these markets, particularly in the Midwest, where you're actually seeing rents declining on a year-over-year basis because basically just they've been building a lot. Um, You know, during the pandemic, it was like everyone became a real estate syndicator, private equity shop, and and plowed money into um, developing multifamily real estate. So you're actually seeing those declines. Of course, in Canada, when you're adding, you know, a million people a year, you know, there's a news story out this week that uh, there was 25 students, 25 students renting in a basement in Brampton, Ontario, Um, 25 students, which is like nuts. The mayor came out, had this big speech and was like, we need to put an end to this. And now they're trying to put in more restrictions for Brampton landlords and and how they rent out their basement units. So this is the problem. I mean, obviously, again, Rich, you've, you've been all over this from day one, so we don't need to get into it. But um, you know, if you look at Canada, CMHC just put out a hundred page report. If anyone wants to go check it out, just, you know, Google CMHC, Uh, Canada's nationwide vacancy, um, vacancy rate is 1.5%. For purpose built rental apartments, 1.5% across the country. For condominium units, which is privately owned individual uh, condo units, the vacancy rate is 0.9%. So Canada is still struggling with a supply demand imbalance on that front. And um, so I think there's, you know, coming back full circle to commercial real estate, there are obviously a lot of nuances involved.
2: I forget what the original question was. You you guys
0: are just <laughs> fall asleep
1: over there?
2: Yeah, well, a little, yeah, I have a question, but... Keith.
1: I have a question for you. I have a question yeah, for you. Shoot. Keith. How much you know how we know that, like, for example, TD has a huge footprint in the northeastern part of America through their asset management business? How much exposure do you think some of these um Canadian banks have in the commercial real estate game in the US and in Canada and and do you think we'll see some? Of, do you think we'll see some of that like leach over onto the balance sheets here or not?
2: Uh, it's a good question. I know it you're tradition- not a banking expert. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty good around. I can maneuver around the financial statements pretty good, actually. Um, you, you know, tr- traditionally, commercial banks' exposure to commercial real estate is a lot less than their exposure to residential loans, right? So it it, it is what it is. Uh, the exposure can be, uh, I like guess you pointed out earlier, which can be very specific in a commercial, so in the commercial real estate world, like industrial or something like that, or and from a geog- geographical perspective. So I mean, you know, we don't talk about individual banks and companies on the podcast and what they might have or may not have. Um, but for these big banks, if you know if this is something that's going to start to move elsewhere around the country, then yeah, most banks are going to have exposure to it. Um, but I think the bigger picture right now for this, you know, the small bank in New York that we reference and you know, the Japanese name, it, it just shows that you know on the fringes there is stress out there still. I mean, remember one person's loan is another person's asset, so that's what's getting in trouble here. You know the banks have an asset; they have to write off a little bit. And uh, you know, on, on the face of it, though, you know we're you know we're we're painting some stories here where there's a lot of negative stuff happening. But the overall aggregate economic data come out. I think that you'll jump into next. It, it's it's still okay in both Canada and the U.S. for different reasons, of course. You know, the American data is different than the Canadian data largely because of the the you know the contribution from the population side, but. The if you have a healthy banking sector, then that's really great for your economy. If it's starting to deteriorate in credit quality or loan volumes, then that's something to keep an eye on. And it is very clear right now, we're we're on, on the latter part for the economy. Because we are seeing loans that are starting to go bad. Banks are provisioning increasingly more credits, you know, what they're Charging on, on rates or yields is a little bit higher than before. So, so again, like n- nothing is screaming here yet, but it is at a point where, yeah, you know, you had my curiosity, but now you have my attention, you know, with, with that that story. Speaking
0: of this uh, real estate crisis, though, like, again, it's kind of just emanating across different parts of global markets, right? So, we've seen uh, Evergrande, for example, which was China's largest real estate developer uh, has put in, put has been put into liquidation um so the company is is basically selling off all their assets um, I mean they're effectively done and then you know there's there's worries that this is gonna emanate into Country Garden which is China's second largest property developer so they're going through a lot of problems over there of course the, the you know the world's second largest economy does that? potentially bring in a wave of deflation or disinflation,
2: I should say, um, to the rest of the world. But it it comes back to this, you know, there's this error of free money, you know, that we referenced earlier. And, you know, there's no miracle growth story out of China. You know, people have been saying that for years. And no, it's not a miracle. It's just, that's what you can do when you borrow a lot of money and you keep borrowing on top of borrowing on top of borrowing, you know, it takes more debt to produce the same amount of economic output. So for these guys to start rumbling or going under and Evergrande, you know, changes their name to Nevergrande and and stuff like that. (laughs) The, uh, you know, a lot of it is, is due to the economy sort of slowing a bit in terms of efficiency, but to this higher rate story. And, you know, again, I think this expectations for that everyone not well for most people what they have is that hey we're going to go back down to one percent again with rates or two percent again like be careful what you wish for because again if we're going down like again it, it's our view hey maybe this is the next thing the loony R is ahead of you know in the game is that uh if the americans are cutting rates by that much steve it, it means the emerging market world you know is crumbling which is kind of ironic because it's it's uh at the beginning of every calendar year, you know, I've seen it now in January as well. All the media and, you know, talking heads are out about, you know, the best opportunities are in the emerging market world again. You know, it, it's like clockwork all the time, you know, emerging markets, la, la, la. And then as the year goes on and for quarter, it's like, ah, it wasn't that good, but maybe next year it'll, it'll be the one. So that's you where we are at, again. Um,
0: how are you looking at Hong Kong? Are you focused on that at all and just in terms of again the property woes that are emanating in in china obviously trickling over into you know the hong kong equity market, um you know banks over there etc um you know i know mutual friend there kyle bass has flagged this quite a bit anything of concern there are we slowly
2: getting to this point of maybe this trade finally working there I think I think if you're a proper investment manager, you have to be aware of what's happening in China and Hong Kong, and not from a perspective that you're going to invest directly in that market. It's from understanding and appreciating what the risks are that's coming out of that market. Because if, if that market does overwhelm like itself, you know, it rolls over. That's that's what it looked like is is happening now. It's going to have a huge effect. You know, it's it is a deflationary effect, as you mentioned, Steve and but with hong kong now i mean the number of like the valuations of banks look at their loan portfolios and things like that like nothing is good for that market and for anyone who's comparing metrics out of hong kong to metrics from you know 10 20 and 30 years ago it, it that's wrong because it's completely different it's no longer an independent market it's completely controlled by the uh, by the ccp and, uh, you know, again, they're, they're struggling. They're, they're really struggling to retain capital because when capital leaves the system, it's, it's, it's not going to go back until, until you feel confident you can get your return of your capital, you know, instead of return on capital. So we, yeah, so we're watching that market very closely, but not as a place to buy, just to understand it better.
1: So, yeah, my, my view on China is a bit sort of um, more generous. I, I, I think China has pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, and you don't do that unless you have some improvements in productivity growth, regardless of how whether that was funded through credit or not. They're the largest exporter in the world to most major con- con- countries. They dominate the consumption of virtually every commodity that you can think of. Um, they're one of the largest, the world's largest steel producer. They're one of the largest ship manufacturers. So the the idea that the economy is just purely a house of cards, I think, is is not accurate. I don't think that that can be supported by the data. Maybe that's where Keith and I sort of butt heads a little bit. But I think the the more general point that right now you have a severe deflationary force in China, I think is unambiguously right new home prices according to the official statistics which to me sound laughable are down negative one percent year on year i think that that's kind of a joke that's probably much more used home prices are down five percent year on year you know i think you could probably triple or quadruple that um and so 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 there's definitely sort of a Something's broken in that housing market where you know the average Chinese person is no longer viewing housing as a way to protect their capital or investment for their children. I th- In Hong Kong, I'm just looking at the series right now, residential prices, property price index, according to the Bank of International Settlements, is down 20% from the peak. And that's an average number. So you can imagine there are some property prices that are probably way, way lower than that. And in Hong Kong, um unlike Canada, where I think banks are probably leveraged what ten to one, Keith. I mean, in Hong Kong, the banks there are leveraged probably twenty, even higher to one, twenty to one or even more. I think the thing is what we don't what we sort of forget about the command economy in China is that you know several years ago they made a concerted effort to push pull their economy away from real estate, right or wrong. And I think we forget how powerful that political impulse is, right or wrong. I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just saying that's what happened. And so they're no longer there's something called fixed asset investment in China, and you can you can Google this if you want. And they are focused on spending mm-hmm. that they're spoken on allocating capital towards electrical equipment, auto manufacturing, which is up 20% year in year. They're dominating certain parts of the electric vehicle market. So again i think in a sense we agree but we sort of come from different places keith like in there's definitely a deflationary force out there but i i i guess i'm just have a more generous view i again, i wouldn't invest, i wouldn't invest my yeah. money there i'm saying from an economic
0: perspective that's what's going on i think this brings up like a an interesting point though right because everybody's so focused on the us and waiting for the, like the us to break right everyone's like looking at the data following it religiously When's the Fed going to cut? And again, to your point, like there's no glaring recession, at least in the US. However, you get, you know, places like China, which are clearly undergoing some difficulties, you know, Europe. I don't know if you want to touch on that. Uh, There's clearly some stuff going on over there. So like these are two real large economies. So if we're looking for sort of, you know, the excuse to to start cutting rates or, you know, uh, some sort of more or less
2: black swan event, uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to be coming from the U.S. I mean, like the, just real quick on Hong Kong before we jump over to Europe. Again, all this affects Canada. Because if we get a crisis yeah. of some kind outside of Canada, it will absolutely affect Canadian financial markets. It would affect your borrowing, what the Bank of Canada is doing, what's happening to the currency and, and stuff like that. I mean, so the, the, the real challenge in Hong Kong with the banking sector, they're already over levered. With, with, I mean, so I think Richie you referenced Canada. Just say we're levered ten to one. Yeah, that's what I said. So for yeah. every, just say one of the Canadian banks has a billion in equity. It means they have another ten billion in loans on top of it, as an example. And if you have to, if you get ten percent loss on that ten billion in loans, it wipes out your equity. Right. That's that's the way it, it works in simple numbers. Uh, in Hong Kong, they're levered multiple times more than the Canadian Yeah, banks? I thought it was about 30 to one, right? Maybe more. Yeah, it could be. And uh but what what's happening is that increasingly the number of loans that are on the books, you know, from the real estate market, they're increasingly going underwater. So the loan to value is now at, you know, it's a negative number, we or got it that way, or we more than 100 percent Um and the banks, if you start writing that off, it means their their equity goes to zero, you know, then they have to raise equity. And then the other challenge with it is that they need U.S. dollars to operate. But the most important bank for China and Hong Kong, it, it is HSBC. So HSBC, it, it is the the conduit for China and Hong Kong to have U.S. dollars, you know, coming in and, and out of their market. And uh, so what we like to do, whenever you get the results coming out, you know, from HSBC, uh, you, you get a real good opportunity then the glimpse to what's happening over there. So I haven't checked their earnings cycle. I'm not sure when they're up next, but that's something to put on your uh, your radar. But again, watch this market because it can really uh, affect everyone else. So- Maybe not, though, nearly as exciting as the Europeans and their yeah. <laughs> fantasy land they have over there. What's happening in Europe, Rich? Well I mean Europe is
1: committing ritual uh suicide I think it's called seppuku right the Japanese the are the Japanese sh- is like the Japanese samurai when they sort of commit uh suicide when they uh, they have dishonored the shogun I mean that's basically what their industrial policy um again people don't like to hear it but it's it's the truth this insistence on green energy shutting down nuclear power plants um, all that stuff is effectively um, it is has pushed up their energy prices. Yes. Also, because of the Russia thing, that's part of it. Um, and effectively, what is happening is their industrial sector is is you know, hemorrhaging is the right word but is under immense, immense pressure because, you know, they are unable to compete on the global stage. Um, You know, how do I sort of support that view? If you look at sort of energy uh, producer price indices, they're almost two and a half times what they were, sorry, energy producer price index is almost two and a half times what it was in 2019. You imagine these are normally businesses with really small margins. So if your largest input cost is as two X, two and a half times what it was three four years ago, you know um, it makes it impossible for you to run and and just quickly a lot of these companies basically turn energy into goods um, and in, and you know we're seeing sort of if you look at the PMIs out of out of, out of Europe they're you know below 50 you know manufacturing sectors 44 these are abysmal abysmal numbers um, and and then we've recently just saw Germany's real retail sales I think it was down negative year on year. Now that's not a seasonally adjusted number, mind you, but you can imagine that real retail sales is contracting almost 4% um, year on year. I mean, so, um, and it's really just a function of sort of just bad industrial policy. Germany, just so people have some context, Germany's GDP is about 25, 27% of Euro area. The next biggest country is France with about 20, 22, then Italy You know, sort of the next one is Spain, and then there's a big drop off, I think, Netherlands, Belgium, and then the rest, and there's just the very long tail. Um, What about the Swiss? What what
2: about the Swiss? (laughs) No, the, the
1: Swiss is not part of the Euro area. That's a good question. The Swiss economy is doing pretty great, even though they're. Um, I mean, their currency is doing really well and because they're not run by idiots. Um, What about Denmark? Denmark? What about Denmark? Denmark's not part of Europe. But anyways, my point about uh, Germany.
2: How can can Denmark and Switzerland not be part of Europe? I don't understand. They they are.
1: No, excuse me. They are part of Europe. They're not part of the euro area. And how do you fit Norway into it? Norway is also not part of the euro area. But neuro, neuro, these are part of the European community, so they share a free trade agreement, but they don't share a currency, and they don't share the same central bank. So Norway has its own central bank and its own currency, and so does Denmark, and so does Switzerland. And Switzerland's not even part of – that's like its own – It's Europe's complicated.
2: <laughs> what about the Swedes? I mean they've been around. They must be part of Europe by now.
1: They're also part of Europe but not part of the euro area or – the EU, technically, but they
2: do have a free trade agreement.
1: Anyway, Keith is busting my balls and when, it's not fair. My when, point would is... They,
2: when is the election for the president of the <laughs> uh, uh, the European Commission? I'd like to see oh who's running. God.
1: Anyways, um, one thing that's been really strong in Europe, and I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, is the service sector, believe it or not. Uh, but that you know, I don't but we're starting to see weakness there, too. I don't know. Europe is in trouble. And it's largely a, a problem of its own making, which is, in my view, probably the most frustrating thing. And I guess we're not the only ones that are frustrated about that. Right, Steve? There's what are they farmers now protesting in France
0: too? farmers are out. I don't so know, it was actually, Germany two
1: weeks ago. It was well. I can tell you, it was Germany two weeks ago, I think, or three weeks ago. And now in France, the farmers are protesting again. It's all the same shit, basically. It's it's the it's the clampdown on for use of fertilizers, uh, squeezing uh, these people and, and how they they produce goods. Um, and then started by the Dutch too. <laughs> started by the Dutch. No, started. I thought it was started by Canadian farmers. Oh, I don't know. Uh, anyway. I
0: just, what, they need to start freezing accounts. Get this, yeah, Get yeah. That's what they should over. do. They should just freeze
1: their bank accounts. That that'll that'll sort it out. But anyway, back to Europe. Just to quickly put a bow on it, I mean, there it's just not looking good. I mean, and and I think although there are some spots where it's okay, like travel, the euro is at really really cheap relative to the US. Might hit parity again. Who knows? Um, in, in general, there's a real, real, uh, there's real pressure on the industrial base of of Germany and the rest of Europe. And do the you, ECB is probably going to be the first to cut. I would say, but maybe. Do that's a you think there's a
0: Quite a few obvious signs there in terms of deflation.
1: Yeah. So unlike U.S., where again I, I think inflation is going to creep back higher in Europe, it's not at all the same. You're you have no credit growth in Europe, so bank intermediation, financial intermediation is paramount in Europe. So like, um, unlike in the U.S. Uh, or even Canada, um, you have like a, a corporate bond market in Europe. It's all bank lending. Okay. And banks, bankers are rightly quite conservative. And so bank lending to non-financial corporates and houses is, if I'm not mistaken, negative across the four major countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so unless you have some kind of credit intermediation, you have a weakness on the industrial sector, um, you're seeing that inflation numbers and inflation numbers come down fast. Um, even the housing sort of is rolling over. So... Yeah, it's trouble. It's trouble for these ECB. I mean, the I'm big, surprised they're so hawkish. Sorry, Keith. Go. Yeah,
2: they're actually turning a bit a bit dovish. I mean yeah. uh so right now the you know they're they're estimating that they could begin cutting, you know, pretty soon. But I mean, but the, the real challenges with Europe and they haven't been fixed. They're not even being addressed and no one talks about them. They have no uh like there's no common treasury for the Eurozone. There's still is it twenty members now. I know I was sort of nineteen fun no. with you there earlier. No, no, it's August. Is it still nineteen. Okay, yeah. and um, so everyone is still running their own treasury. You know what what they're collecting and and spending and taxes and everything, but most importantly, there's no federal debt for the eurozone. So they that totally creates a void in the world for competition for global capital. So if you want to park your money or your, your, you want to park it overnight in something liquid, it's only the US. That's it. You can't go into the Eurozone because then you have to pick which one are you going to buy. You know, you're know you going to buy German debt, which we're finding out now. You know The German economy is coming off. But then the other challenge with Europe, of course, is you know, this whole geopolitical you know, challenge they're in. Like, they are not energy independent at all. They are energy dependent, and they're dependent on some guys the Americans don't want you to be friendly with. So it's, you know, and the world is increasingly, you know, going down this path where, you know, we we could have war or conflict of some type coming up We're expanding from where it's taking place right now. So Europe is is really in a a hard spot. And it doesn't mean we can't get out of it, but they can't get out of it on their own. Europe is, is isolated and it needs the world to improve and to calm down. For it to do better, there's two two more things. So just to support that view, so the way you know you say it's it's
1: very dependent on the global cycle and especially China. So you know the you, if you look at and so is Canada for example. But you know you look at exports plus imports as a percentage of GDP is one way you would calculate trade openness. I understand people might say that that's an arbitrary way of calculating it have shit that's what we do um, you know that's a way of and then so for example US is you know maybe less than half as dependent on the global cycle Canada has exports are very important um, Europe so if, if you have a weakening China which is a large part of the global economy, if you have a US which is increasingly sort of more isolationist and more inward looking that you know that, that affects um, Europe's economy the other thing that people should know though is that Europe's equity market, is not related to its domestic economy. The largest stocks in the European equity market are LVMH, SAP, BASF. All these companies. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. You know, um, you know, some of the German manufacturers are obviously big, but a lot of the biggest and uh, um, stocks in that equity market are actually sort of geared to the global. Um, global cycle and actually done really, really well. I think LVMH is one of the best performing stocks of the last five years. So it's funny how you can have. You left a, out, a you left
2: out all the, all the Swiss companies.
1: Oh yeah. Excuse me. Sorry. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That's right. No, but in the, like the Euro stocks, 50 Switzerland, and Euro stocks, 600 Switzerland is a big waiting in there. And the, they've actually done really well, which is sort of the irony of all this.
0: Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I think ultimately, you know, we've kind of gone around the world and, it seems, uh, yeah, the U.S. remains the cleanest dirty shirt in the uh, in the laundry hamper. So we'll have to keep an eye on on the rest of the uh, rest of the world here if we're looking for an outlook on when rates do eventually get cut, if they get cut. Uh, it seems like they won't be emanating from the U.S. And uh, sure, Tiff, our boy Tiff Mathlum's watching too. So hi Tiff, hi Tiff. As always, good place to end it. See you next week.